Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. On today's show, we have Lindsay Barrett, staff attorney and teaching fellow at the Institute for Public Representation, Communications, and Technology Clinic at Georgetown University. Lindsay, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, today, we're going to discuss your article about information fiduciaries and the privacy framework and how those two concepts can be together. The United States right now is at crossroads. We have a California Consumer Protection Act that uh, is going to go into effect on January 1st of 2020, pushing everyone to have a privacy debate over again, which is, I think, a good thing because a lot of things have changed since last time. We kind of thought through a privacy uh, reform and how um, technology has changed that will understand privacy, both from government and consumer privacy. And now uh, we have this you know, question of do we pass a federal privacy legislation? Do we let California go into effect and uh, states pass their own laws? How is it going to affect the economy? How is it going to affect consumer rights? There are so many questions that we have to ask ourselves. And there is no clear one solution that both parties can um, come to. Not yet, at least. We have a little bit more time left. But I would ask you, what is the failure of the notice and choice model that we have right now? Oh, man. Uh, how much time you got? So um, in this paper, I kind of go through why, um, what what are the failures of not just notice and choice, but um, the other failures of American privacy law and regulation that um, require a, a new approach to to the ecosystem. Um, in terms of notice and choice, we we have this fiction that if you provide people with a boilerplate notice of data collection, uh, use, or data use and collection policies, that then they are um, given sufficient information to weigh the risks and make decisions accordingly. When in reality, uh, you know, the volume of privacy policies that we encounter each day and privacy choices, you know, there's privacy settings, other things than privacy policies. Um, the um, They're confusingly written, um, usually at a reading level that far exceeds that of the average American. Uh, they're written in con- confusingly lease. They're opaque. They often don't disclose all the risks that a person needs to know because the company doesn't can't predict the future or because the privacy policy is hiding what the company doesn't want to tell people. Um, And then beyond that, um, people just have basic cognitive limitations that make uh, that make notice and choice a, a um, an insufficient way for people to protect themselves in the online ecosystem. So um, people are generally pretty bad at ascertaining risks. People, um, there's something, there's a phenomenon known as hyperbolic discounting, which is we um, we tend to opt for uh, short-term rewards over. Um, longer term rewards and, you know, things like using, um, using public Wi-Fi um, to immediately log on, even though we know it's a bad idea. Um, there are so many ways in which notice and choice does not enable people to, and, and not to mention the fact that um, the, there's a notice and then there's a choice uh, that would imply either that the, the company actually gives you a choice, or if you say, all right, you know, blank blanket privacy policy company I don't want to use, I will then go use the alternative to this product or service. 
that also doesn't usually exist. So in 26 Ways to Sunday, uh, notice and choice is not an effective way for people to um, make privacy decisions and generally protect themselves online. And uh, Europeans were a little faster than the United States, and they have passed the General Data Protection Regulation. What is um, special about that regulation, and why don't we just adopt what they did? Yeah, so that's basically this part of what I um, tried to grapple with in the paper. So the symposium that I wrote it for was about the GDPR, mm-hmm. and I'd been reading about um Professor Balkan's idea of the information fiduciary and um, kind of trying trying to square the uh, sort of philosophical reasons of why you would why you'd want that as opposed to the GDPR conception of you know privacy as a fundamental right. And frankly, you know, the GDPR does a lot of great things and an information fiduciary framework isn't um, mutually exclusive with the rights and approaches that the GDPR takes. So, for instance, a lot of the individual rights, I think you could sweep in under a, under the duty of loyalty or duty of care. You, uh, The GDPR um, provides for various avenues for individuals to actually vindicate their claims and get, in, get into court. Um, an information fiduciary um, bill could have a private right of action, could... Um, could require the um, or, you know, provide for both um, the FTC and the state AGs to vindicate claims, that kind of thing. Um, the GDPR takes a, um, a very deliberate and strong approach to enforcement, which an information fiduciary bill would absolutely have to do. Any privacy bill has to do if we can't make, you know, these sweeping grand pronouncements about how important privacy is without actually providing the incentives for companies to abide by it. So the GDPR builds on a constitutional right to privacy that U.S. law doesn't have. And, you know, we that in many ways kind of elevates the conversation in Europe uh, over privacy and um, in addition to giving it a legal underpinning uh, or a a stronger legal basis, whereas in the U.S. for consumer privacy, there tends to be this narrative of privacy is a good, which means that people should be enabled to trade it away under any circumstances. There should be no, uh, there is no moral imperative of protecting people. when it comes to consumer privacy. And what I liked about um, information fiduciaries is it seemed to me to even even without a constitutional right to privacy against private, private entities, uh, information fiduciaries, um, the fiduciary framework is developed in a commercial context. So it takes um, the idea that you have a professional uh, performing their performing their trade, um, but at the same time, their rights and prerogatives need to be limited in light of the incentives that they have to abuse the vulnerabilities of their clients. And similarly, we, you know, you you take that approach to data collectors who are trusted with people's sensitive information. There's an asymmetry of power, and there's incentives to abuse that power because. No, no one's making them abide by the law and the law sets the bar very low. And that adds a, a moral valence to the idea of consumer privacy that uh, U.S. law and the idea of uh, privacy is something you should be able to trade away 
under all circumstances, currently lacks. As I understand, an information fiduciary concept would be that step towards more of a European um, philosophical approach to privacy. So it would take us from the good and kind of move us forward um, in the direction of this is more of a right, but not be fully there. Is is that's, this? That's sort of the claim I make in the paper. And I think, you know, you can look at it in a number of different ways. I think some sometimes, you know, the paper is also, it's, part, it's grappling with basic realities, but it mostly sets out an ideal set of circumstances, what I think should happen, not what kind of parameters you need to fulfill within the Congress, within the, the House we have, the Senate we have, et cetera. Um, I think that any any system of regulating privacy that elevates the idea of privacy against companies moves us towards privacy as a right. It doesn't create the same kind of textual um, right to both privacy and data protection that um, that Europe has, but you also don't need it. So, you know, I, you could say kind of in this philosophical sense, yeah, it, it moves us more towards a European understanding of privacy in that the Europeans tend to think it's important and there is a there is a narrative in American policy discussions that privacy is not. Um, but I think also just by virtue of how loaded, you know, oh, GDPR is taking over American privacy law. It's, it's one way of looking at it. It's not necessarily determinative. I see. So you care about more of the protections that should be put in place versus the cultural and philosophical thinking that we as a society would have over privacy. Action first, thinking after? <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't say that. More more just that I agree with your framing, but we also don't need to say, you know, this makes us more European by virtue of the fact that a lot of people <laughs> tend to read that and, you know, run in 27 different directions over the I, I read that and I think, oh, you mean you mean the people who think that protecting people online is important? Great, Oniva. But you know, right? I'm I'm talking semantics. But. My guess is it's because the privacy discussion has been so um, intense and um, very. People are you know separating into camps and there's crossfire. So I think, yeah, using trigger words like right um, is definitely not helping anyone move the needle. Now um, let's turn to the information fiduciary and how it would apply in the privacy framework. Uh, what, what 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 did you propose? So I had a couple different ideas. Um, so I'm uh, basing you know this whole paper is based off of Jack Balkan's work and also Jonathan Zittrain. So their kind of their thinking was obviously very influential and I was building off of that. Um, one thing that I think is um, important is that it has to be a compulsory classification. If um, Balkan and Zittrain set up um, or, or rather they propose an opt-in framework, which I think given the current incentives of the ecosystem, namely collect first, ask questions later, and regulators are working with both inadequate tools, but also not doing as much as they could, um, that won't be enough to fundamentally reset the balance um, given how far skewed it is towards corporate prerogatives and away from individual rights and protections. Um, so I think first, um, you know, you, you apply it on a compulsory basis. Second, who does it apply to? So if we're, if we're talking about 
an FTC enforceable framework, then you you either have to um, change what their um, jurisdiction t- typically encompasses um, or accept the limitations of, no, this doesn't apply to common carriers. Um, I think that in order for this to be effective and for a comprehensive privacy law to be effective, you have to apply it to the entities that collect data, period. Um, so I, so I would, everyone that collects data. Yes. Um, I think there are there are ways to, to think carefully about, you know, certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a forgiveness, like you try once, you get a warning, you get off for small businesses, but not necessarily completely exempted because of course, small businesses can still violate your privacy. But yes, I think it should apply across the board. Um, and then after that, I there's a number of different uh, components. So I think that in general, you know, a fiduciary framework includes a duty of care, duty of loyalty, duty of confidentiality. These can be interpreted or implemented in a range of different ways. One of the reasons I like a fiduciary framework is that um, duty of care, loyalty, um, a little bit less so confidentiality is a broader sense of kind of the digital vulnerabilities and um ways in which we are at risk in using network technology. So, you know, I think that a fiduciary framework can encompass manipulation and um, a like an anti-discrimination uh, principle or um, setup. And in considering how um, how to regulate the way that tech affects us, Privacy is is crucial. We're talking about a privacy law, but just kind of a, a sense of privacy as disclosure of information, I think, is too limited considering the ways in which, you know, online services and products impact our lives. So that's one of the reasons why I like a fiduciary framework is because it is capable of encompassing this broader approach to both digital harms and to privacy harms because one one of the one of the things I outlined in the paper as a problem of our current ecosystem is an overly narrow approach to what a privacy harm is. So, to unduly focused on physical harms or monetary harms, um, you know that's starting to shift, and we have a better um, understanding of privacy harms as pertains to, you know, dignity and anxiety. Um, but I, that's one of the reasons why I think that um, fiduciaries are a good approach to that. Uh, your article mentions the enforcement mechanism for traditional fiduciary duties, but how would uh, enforcement of information fiduciary duties uh, be done? Yeah. So I think any, um, any privacy bill in order to really um, kind of re- reset this very skewed balance has to have uh, meaningful enforcement, meaningful penalties. So I think there's there's a number of of issues here. One, um, you know, the primary data protection agency in the in the United States is the FTC. One, their uh, their jurisdiction is is circumscribed to not entirely include common carriers. So that's that's an issue um, or nonprofits. Um, and there's also been some critiques of a um, cultural reticence to enforce um, the authority that they do have. So I think, you know, if, if I'm designing my my magical, idealized, you know, utopia privacy law that never happens, I would also probably 
build a digital agency from the ground up um, in the world in which we currently live, I would give quite a bit more uh, money, uh, people and authorities, rulemaking authorities, civil penalty authority um, to the FTC and ensure that they're actually, once we set a law in the book saying privacy is important, you know, don't violate this, there's actually going to be someone to to stand and say there say to companies and also if you do violate this something will happen this is not abstract so i think um kind of both building up building up the ftc's role in again not not my ideal uh, my ideal privacy law but my privacy law in the world in which we live um and other avenues to enforcement are also important. So um, giving authority to the state AGs to enforce. I also think a private right of action um, is is important um, when we're talking about how, you know, how difficult it is for privacy rights to be vindicated and how, how little incentive companies have to, to respect the law currently. You know, t- one, one conception I liked um, of kind of how to how to frame the issue. Uh, there's a pap- paper I read by um, Chris Hufnagel and forgive me, my memory's failing, um, and uh, two co-authors on the GDPR. And what they wrote was that the GDPR is an attempt to put privacy law on the same on the same kind of level of gravity and um, as antitrust and um, corrupt practices law and make companies actually see those in the same light as opposed to this is the kind of this is the law we have to take seriously this is the law we don't and i think that enforcement real penalties is an absolutely crucial part of making sure that that's so all right so uh one of the last questions i had on this topic was about harms Mm -hmm. you in your article if i remember correctly talk about uh you know what harms how we used to think about harms and what harms, in your opinion, now should be when we apply this model of information fiduciary and as we move forward in trying to um, update and inform our privacy laws and regulations. Uh, Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so one of the things I wrote about in the paper and my reasons for liking the conception of a fiduciary framework is that it, one, it creates the presumption of um, there being a duty to users as opposed to the presumption that there is none. And within that, it also creates a broader sense of harm as pertains to privacy and pertains to, you know, the the digital uh, risks that we encounter in using online services. So um, manipulation, discrimination, things like, you know, Airbnb while black, um, digital redlining. And I think in in understanding how we conceptualize these harms, I think in privacy policymaking and scholarship, there tends to be a bit of um, a higher bar than is set in other areas to kind of, I don't even know, uh, convince people that it's real. And I think um, it's taken a while, but I, I think this is more, it's incrementally more just a part of our, you know, in, in all in all stripes of life, computers aren't really an optional part of living in the world. And people have a better sense of kind of how, uh, how digital harms can impact you. And it's less of a 
you know, someone sitting in a room saying, oh, well, you, you don't have to use Facebook. Whatever happens to you is your fault. It's increasingly a fringe view. And we've had, you know, thoughtful, brilliant academics thinking and policymakers thinking through these problems for, you know, 20, 20, almost 30 years now. And I'm confident that we're, that would be able to craft, you know, sufficiently both ambitious and meaningful, but limited and not vague. Yeah, not vague um, definitions to the kind of harms that this law would target. All right. So stay tuned, guys, for that. Is there anything uh, as a final thought to wrap up your article that you want our listeners to take away? Yeah. Um, one one thing that I, that I do want to emphasize is both that um, the idea of the even though my, my my article somewhat counterposes them, you know, you, uh, U.S. privacy law, GDPR, and information fiduciaries, these are three things, and they are different. You know, a fiduciary approach doesn't um, doesn't preclude a lot of the really great approaches that the GDPR takes. Um, another is that there have been some pretty fair critiques of the idea of information fiduciaries, that it's you know, like a vague kind of wishy-washy um, approach to privacy regulation that will um, create or rather strengthen the illusion of um, that tech companies have your best interest at heart. Um, one of the critiques that is very well thought out, and I urge people to go read it, um, is by Lena Khan and David Posen. And um, I, I rebut some of their claims in their paper. It, um, the paper was pretty late in, my paper was late in the publication process when this came out, but I, I tried to incorporate it. And um, a couple things that they address is that the, the idea of conflicts is simply too inherent to the um, business model of companies like Facebook, of ad tech companies, for a fiduciary framework to really have any impact. Um, my feeling there is that when you're looking at the kind of the, the context of fiduciaries in other frameworks, in law and medicine, those conflicts are um, pretty, pretty deep seated and um, ongoing as well. You know, in medicine, you have the problem of uh, pharmaceutical reps influencing prescribing practices, you know, doctors recommending uh, medical devices that they have a stake in. It's not as though the fiduciary um, kind of conception of consumer protection is is unable to deal with uh, perpetual conflicts. Um, and the other is that um, in their paper, they point out that in most in most states, I think in nearly all of them, um, that state law that, um, you know, cor- corporate law is on is mostly on a state level. Most state laws say, um, you know, shareholder duties come before anything. Wouldn't that trans fiduciary duties? Yeah, I think it would. But that's why you say in your you know, in your in your um, federal fiduciary law and, you know, here or state, whichever, you know, and. And thus, I preempt, you know, this comes before shareholder duties. I think that's a solvable problem. I see. Well, uh, we're obviously going to link to your paper in the show notes so people can uh, read it for themselves. And contextualize my rambling. <laughs> they can. We'll also link to your Twitter profile. You're pretty active on Twitter and you answer questions. So I'm sure that would be a way for them to contact you without uh, overwhelming you with emails. Absolutely. Too active. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, 
for our Women in Tech segment, um, I wanted to start by asking you, how did you end up doing tech policy? Was it because you were just interested in privacy and now the next horizon of privacy is the digital era? Or um, was there some other sequence of events that led you here? It was um, it was pretty serendipitous. I had a wonderful um, professor for criminal procedure, um, Julia Sullivan at Georgetown Law, and um, she really made the Fourth Amendment cases come alive. And um, I was at my my one all summer job that was completely unrelated to tech, and you know, doing research for the on campus interviewing process, and realized that oh wait, privacy is a law that. Their privacy is an area that lawyers do. I can go do that. And then just started, you know, taking all the classes and interning places and just learning as much as I possibly could. And that happened to coincide also, luckily, with a um, time when Georgetown Law was really starting to double down on um, its tech offerings and trying to make the school a um, robust um, community for um, privacy and technology. And to their credit, I'm, I mean, I'm biased because I work there now, but um, I think they've really succeeded. And um, it's just, I don't know, it's a, it's an area that I find deeply, deeply important, um, but also kind of intellectually stimulating and creative. Um, and I, yeah, haven't looked back and I absolutely love it. And that's how I met Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've, we've known each other for a little over a year, although in D.C. years, that's like seven. Yeah. Um, years. And in a lot of the wonderful conversations and exciting conversations that you and I had, we came up with an idea yes, that um, I think our listeners will be excited about. Um, so Lindsay and I were talking uh, about just the dynamics in the tech world in general and the gender dynamics and the difference between Silicon Valley and DC and obvious difference between uh, women who are in STEM, who are engineers or scientists and um, women who work in tech policy. Uh, There are a lot of differences between the two categories, but also a lot of similarities because obviously gender dynamics don't really change that much um, on given any issue area or any market or any geographical spot on the American map. Um, We're all broken. It's all bad. It's all all not amazing. Um, And so we were thinking and we were inspired by um, wonderful women in Silicon Valley, a few of them who came forward with uh, kind of disclosing the information about their incomes and the salaries that they have um, and creating this community of women who shared that information to kind of support each other and give each other even just kind of a mark or um, some kind of a leading guide. Basis of comparison. Yeah, basis yeah. of comparison on what they made, how many years of experience they had, and how did it, it all affect the company that they worked at. Um so we figured that we could start our own little um, kind of similar project to that. Uh, for um, So please uh, send us information. We're going to contact people that we know, the women in tech that we know, to start this off. And we obviously need allies and men to disclose their information to. This will be all de-identified. Um, it would have just general information about years of experience that you have, um, level of degree, kind of just the industry or sub in the category of a place where you work and um, your income. Yeah. I, it's, I can't just um, 
yeah, it's it's so important for people to kind of have a any kind of resource to understand where they are in terms of what they're making and what the what the standards standards are because it's very easy, you know, speaking of experience, speaking from experience, it's very easy to get screwed over without even realizing that it's happening to you. And, you know, there are plenty of places that are well-intentioned and others that, you know, less so. And we want to do whatever it is that we can to ensure, you know, it's tough out here. Like we, we want to give people a, a way to kind of understand where they are and kind of have a little bit more insight into what they're worth and what they're what they're able to bargain with um and we our our plan is to have um we we won't release any um at, at some point we'll have a like a non-editable um spreadsheet and we won't release it until we have a a sufficient volume so that it's not identifiable. You know, if you have five people, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you don't have names. Well, I'm pretty sure small people place. know it's like me and you on yeah. there. <laughs> um, but we, we want to ensure um, people's, people's privacy. And we also want to give young people starting and, you know, people in their mid careers, people, whenever, but um, particularly people who are starting out and don't have as deep a network or as deep an understanding of what's okay and what is acceptable to kind of know where they are and um, have a sense of, um, yeah, what they're worth and what they should be asking for and how they're being treated. There's definitely a sense of community between women who work in D.C. and um, in general women who work in D.C. in tech policy or women who work in D.C. at nonprofits. And we kind of want to bring that together and not only have discussions and networking and just helping each other in real life, but also have some kind of a tangible piece of information that um, generations to come can use, update, look back on as a historical artifact at some point. Um, So stay tuned. We are going to announce it uh, around the time the episode is going to be published, and we're going to give you all the information you need to contact us or ask questions. Yeah, and and can't emphasize enough, um, you know, one of the our kind of animating um, thought behind this was kind of women women in tech policy, but um, you know something that we're uh, certainly cogn- cognizant of is um, you know we we need male al- allies to also contribute. You know people people don't know they're <laughs> they're getting paid at desperate rates until somebody tells them, um, and yeah, we just um, we hope that you think about. Uh, you know, being a part of this. Amazing. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming. I'm sure um, this is your first time on the podcast, but not the last. Can't wait. And we are very excited about all the work you do at your clinic, and we definitely want to have you back to talk about that. I know Fox News already had you on. <laughs> oh, man. Local affiliate. <laughs> Local affiliate of Fox News. Um, but we we definitely have so many other topics to discuss, and 2019 is the Super Bowl for privacy lawyers, so we would love to have you, um, you know, on our team. I'd love to be back. Well, thank you for listening and please subscribe to Tech Freedom and leave us a review so others can find the show. Have a good one. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, 
make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.